Do you ever feel like, like life has taken you some places that you just didn't want to go? Like some things have happened to you that you, you just don't know why God has allowed you to go through the things you've gone through. Maybe, maybe you had this idea, the, the dreams and vision about what your future was going to look like. And you, you were headed that way, everything was just fine, and all of a sudden life comes at you and you just zigs and zags all over the place and, and you go through these things that you just, you just weren't ready for. I, I was here yesterday with many of you as we were celebrating the life of Jeff Carter in our church who passed away. And it was a beautiful celebration of a man who had impacted so many people, but I just, I left that one. I know the family and friends and many of you left us going, but God, Why? Why, why, why would you get us here? We weren't expecting this. I looked out over the people who were there and I, I just couldn't control, I was just weeping because I could see people so affected by a loss and it broke my heart as a shepherd. So I'm going, why, God, why? Why'd you let that? I didn't expect my loved one to die, God. Why would you let that happen? It doesn't make sense to me. God, I was, I was going fine. Why did you let me lose my job? That was my career. That's where I was headed, God, Why? God, why did you let me fail so colossally? I, everything was going okay. You, you could have prevented it, God. You could have helped. God, why is my health plummeting? Why, why did I have to hear about cancer? Why, why do I have to be so weak all the time? God, why? God, why, why do you let me struggle with these sins? I, I want so desperately to be free from, God. Why do you let me fall over and over again, God? Why? It just sometimes it feels like your life, the very place you want to go, even if it's to honor God, you just can't get there. And life zigs and zags, and it feels like you're just wandering around in the desert. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands in the room, but I just wonder how many of you feel that way. Because my guess is, after talking to a number of you, that it's way more than you realize. You see, when you're kind of wandering around in life, looking back, going, this is not where I expected to be, there's a couple of lies that emerge in you. The first lie is that you're all alone. You're the only one suffering with that. Like everyone else's life is going peachy and you're the only one tripping and falling and, and you've gotten off with the plan that you had for your life. It's not just you. The majority of us feel that way because life is really stinking hard sometimes and it throws things at us that we are not prepared for. The majority of us are not where we expected to be. We're zigging and zagging. You are not alone. But the second lie that comes up is that somehow God has lost his grip on your life. Like he's, he's not in control of it. Somehow this has gotten outside of his will. But here's what I want to tell you. God never wastes a zig and he never wastes a zag. Every movement of your life, God is divinely orchestrating to bring about the greatest good. You know this, if you know Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things, not majority, all things. Now, I, I want to be really cautious and say this because there's some of you who can misinterpret what I'm saying. I am not saying God causes the evil, bad things in your life. Because if you read the Bible, there is no evil that comes from God. He is perfectly righteous and good. But I am saying God uses everything. He orchestrates, he might not cause it all, but he uses it all for the sake of his perfect plan. You are not outside what God can use for your good and his glory. God has not lost his grip on you. You just have to understand how God works so you can learn how to trust him. And that's what I want to give you today. I want to teach you today to understand the mysterious ways of God, how he works, 
so that you can learn to trust him and discover the plan he has for you. And we're going to hear about it in the shortest passage of scripture we're going to look at in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 13. So I want you to open your Bible to Exodus 13. In a moment, we're going to read verses 17 through 22. Six quick verses, the shortest passage, but the, I think one of the richest passages with truth. Now, if you're, uh, if you're tuning in for the first time or you're in the room and, and joining us, you may not know what we're doing. We're going to the book of Exodus, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We started a few months ago back in Exodus 1-1, and we are now in Exodus 13, verse 17. We are one week away from the most well-known story in the Old Testament, the crossing of the Red Sea. That's coming next Sunday. You're not going to want to miss it. It's very, very important. Uh, the whole nation of Israel is defined by that one event. And so we're almost there. The 10 plagues have happened. The death of the firstborn, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians that booted out the Israelites said, here, take our gold and our silver and our clothing. Just get out of here. And right before they're going to leave, the, the father the last few weeks has been teaching them some lessons about the, the Passover lamb and about the unleavened bread and the consecration of the firstborn. So now all the teaching's done. And today they embark upon their journey. But I want you to see in these six verses what God teaches them about himself in the beginning of their journey. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 17, says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Okay, six really quick verses that when you're reading through the book of Exodus, you likely just jump right over. And keep going on because you're ready for the parting of the Red Sea. But those six verses teach us a tremendous truth about who our God is and how we learn to trust him. It all starts in the first, first part of the first verse. Here you learn something really powerful about God. And I'm going to tell you what it is before we read it. God never leads in a straight line. You should know that about God. Like if you need to go from point A to point B, his way to get there looks a lot like this. He never leads in a straight line. You see this at the very beginning of this passage. Look back at verse 17. He says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. So the way of the Philistines, I'm going to give you a little geography lesson. This is what was called the Via Maris. Uh, that it's just Latin for the way of the sea. So if I had a map in front of you, you'd have Egypt down here. You'd have the land of Israel up here. And, and there was a coastline that kind of went up this way. And hugging that coastline was a, a well-traveled road called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. It was the shortest distance to get from where they were to the promised land. A little history lesson. They were in the land of Goshen for a long time, for hundreds of years as slaves. Uh, they, they get liberated. They go to the land of uh, the city of Ramses, and that's where they plunder the Egyptians, and they get the gold and silver and clothing and jewelry. And then they move to the city of Succoth, and that's where they're at before they're about to go. And right from that city, the Via Maris is due north. If they go due north, they're going to hit the coastline and be on the Via Maris and make their way. And here's what's so incredible. From the city of Succoth, if they take the Via Maris, they make it to the promised land in two weeks by foot. That's all it would take is two weeks. It's the direct route due north. 
They know where they're supposed to go. They know their history. They know that over 400 years before, God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would get the land of Canaan. That would be the promised land. And now they're set free. All they have to do is get to the promised land. So surely they're going to go north on the Via Maris. And then you read verse 18, and God does the exact opposite. Look at verse 18 again. He said, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, I, you read it. One of the reasons why you don't see the impact of it is because you don't recognize that the way of the wilderness is due south. So the Via Maris is due north, two-week journey. That's how you get there. And God says, actually, no, you're going to go due south. And because they go due south, instead of a two-week journey of getting over to the promised land, they embark upon a 40-year journey wandering around in the wilderness. Now, I don't know how far off your life feels like from the plan that you have set for you, but it's probably not this bad. Two weeks turns into 40 years because they go south instead of north. And you got to know this. Moses is trying to lead a grumbly, argumentative, really, really nasty people. And they don't, they don't take any instruction he gives well. And so here's the moment. The whole nation, there's a million plus of them. They know to go due north because that's the Via Maris. It's clear as day. And Moses says, actually, God is telling us to go south. And you know every single one of those leaders goes, are you crazy, Moses? Moses, there's nothing to the south. Everything's to the north. We're supposed to go to the north. And, God, and Moses says, but God said south. So we're going south. And what makes it even worse is that the moment they go south, they encounter their greatest crisis yet as a people. They come up against the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army, we're going to read about it next week, changes their mind and pursues after them. And now they are pinned in like a trapped rat between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And all the leaders are going, you see, this is what happens when, you, when we try to do what God says. It leads us right here to our death. Now, I, I want to pause right there for one moment. I want to tell you, this is how our God works. There are a lot of times when your obedience will put you in the scariest place of your life. <clears throat> Doesn't seem to make sense. You think, I obey God, I'm going to have blessings from heaven. And yet, I think many of you who've tried to follow God would know that the moment you try to follow God, you enter into dangerous territory. That sometimes the worst things that have happened to you in your life is when you've been trying to be obedient to Almighty God. And there's a side when that happens, when you know where you're supposed to go, you know where the promises of God are, and he's sending you the other direction. You're going, God, do you even know what you're doing? What, what are you doing causing this in my life, God? There are times when it seems like God doesn't know what he's up to. I'm, I'm going to confess to you, I had one of those seasons in my life. Uh, I've shared parts of the story before, but it's just so significant in my life. I, I, I've got to help you understand how God taught me this. It was when I was called to ministry. So I was in college and God called me to ministry and very clearly called me to be a pastor, to, to lead the church, to, to preach the word of God. And I felt just on fire for Jesus. Like, I'm, Lord, I want to build your kingdom. I want to grow your church. I want to go where you tell me to go. I just, I want to spend my days, God, for your glory. Just, just put me in, coach. Whatever you want me to do, I, I'm ready for it. God, whatever church, whatever place. But I knew I had some training to do. And so I, I was in school and training. Then I went overseas for two years doing missionary work. Then I come back and I go through seminary because I'm going to get ready for it. And at, at the end of, of my seminary career, I'm ready. I'm prepared. I'm ready to preach the word of God. I've now got the, the background that I need. I've, I've been through a lot of experiences. I'm ready to lead your people. God, all I need is the assignment. Put me in, God. Just 
Give me, Lord, the church that will be crazy enough to go with me and, and I'll preach the word and I'll lead the people towards you, God. I know where I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to pastor a church. All I need from you, God, is the ability to be there. Open the door. Around the same time, the little church where I was serving, small little church of about 35 people, the pastor there resigns. And I'm the associate pastor there. And I'm going, okay, praise the Lord. God has shown that this, the, the resignation was healthy. He had another opportunity he was going to. We're proud of him. And I said, this is the door God's opening. I'm going to be able to lead in this church. So I, su I submit my resume to be considered for the pastor of this little bitty church of 35 people. And I hand them my resume and they hand it right back. And they say, we're not even going to interview you. You're not the guy. And I, again, I, I've shared this a million times, but when a church of 35 people rejects you, you don't have a whole lot of hope at that moment. And they, they rejected me, and I, I go into that pit of like, oh my goodness, God, did I choose the wrong calling? What, what in the world? I thought, you, I thought you were speaking to me. I thought you were drawing me in. So I pray, and then I have a moment of confidence going, okay, no, I know God, is, he's still got a plan for me. I know he's still working hard. So I come back to faith, and I say, I just got to find the right place. And I send my resume out to 70 churches, and 70 churches utterly ignore me. And here I am now, months and months of months, of trying to knock on every door I can, and it just being slammed in my face over and over and over. And at this moment now, I'm going, God, are you up there? Or did, do I need to throw in the towel? Did, did I pick the wrong profession? Have I just wasted the last seven years of my life? Because there's nowhere to go, God. You've made a mistake. I've made a mistake. Something's off here. It just didn't seem right to me. Do north, the church, where I can serve, where I can be about your glory. That's where I want to go, and you're sending me this way. It doesn't make any sense, God. This is the exact same thing God does to us over and over and over. He zigs and zags. We think we're going the right way, and he sends us off that direction. And every time he does, you go, God, are you there? Are you, do you know what you're doing? We feel like we're ready for whatever's coming ahead. But the truth is, when God zigs and we're, we want to zag, it's because we know, he knows we're not ready for the zag. I wasn't ready. I, I thought I was ready. I've been to seminary. I, I've, I've been overseas. I, I know how to preach. I'm ready. Put me in, coach. And God said, Jason, you are so not ready. If I put you in a church, you'll kill yourself and everyone else around you. I got some work to do in you before you're ready to do what you, what you want to do for me. That's how God works. He protects us from our own desires. This is the very thing God was doing to the Israelites. You see, they wanted to go north through the Via Maris because they thought they were ready. You, you see it, a clue in, in the end of verse 18, when it says that they marched out equipped for battle, it says in the, in the English Standard Version of it. I'll be, I'll be honest with you, that's it's a pretty loose translation of what the Hebrew says at the end of verse 18. It, it, it's based on a Hebrew word, and the equip for battle is one Hebrew word, and it's based on the root for the, the number five. And what it means is they marched out in fives, which is a battle formation. So a, a more exact translation instead of equip for battle would be that they marched out in battle formation, in fives. Now, you, do you know where they learned this battle formation? They learned it from watching the Egyptians. Because remember, this, this was a slave population. They didn't know, they were never warriors. They were never soldiers. They didn't know how to fight in a war. But they saw the Egyptians march through their cities and they would be marching in fives. That was a battle formation. And so what do they do when they're free? They go, okay, I guess this is how you do it. So we'll line up in rows of fives and we'll march out together. Because this is what good soldiers are supposed to look like. 
They're pretending to be soldiers. They don't know how to fight. They don't know how to do war. But they think because they've seen it, they can do it. It's like some kid who plays Call of Duty and thinks he can go to real war because he knows how to play a video game. It's like little kids who watch a war movie and they go out back and they're like, we're ready for it. We're soldiers. No, it's pretend. You don't know how to fight in a war just because you've seen a war somewhere else. Just looking at a soldier doesn't make you a soldier. But these Israelites, they'd seen what soldiers look like and they thought, okay, we're ready. So they line up in their battle formation thinking they can go north because they can handle whatever's coming. But God knew they weren't ready. He knew that if they went north, they were going to hit these garrisons all along the way because the Egyptians owned the Via Maris. They had set up fortresses, fortresses all along the way because they wanted to control the movement of the Via Maris. And God knew that if they had gone north, they would have, they would have conquered battle or confronted battle after battle after battle after battle with Egyptians that were skilled in war, who had chariots and had swords and had shields, and they would have been devoured on their way up. And if by some miracle, they made it past all the Egyptian garrisons. The first people they would have come into were the Philistines, who were fierce. And they would have tried to fight the Philistines. They would have been just stunk. I mean, they would have just been laid low, dead in a heartbeat. And if by some miracle, they make it past the Philistines, then they run into the Canaanites, where they are giants in the land, and there's no way they're going to be able to overcome them. God knows they are toast if they go to the Via Maris. And his greatest grace was to send them south because he knew they weren't ready. In fact, what's so interesting about God is that he knew how they would respond the moment they saw war. I want you to go back to verse 17. I want you to look at the second half of verse 17. You know, after he was saying, you know, he didn't let them go by the way of the Philistines, even though that was near, it says, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God knew that the moment they saw war, they were going to change their minds and head back to Egypt. You, you want to know how God knew that? Because God was one year in the future at the same moment he was there. I, I don't know if you know this about God, but God stands above time. And to stand above time means that right now he is in the future, like he's in the present, like he's in the past. He's not bound by time like we are. So in this moment, in Exodus chapter 13, God is already in Numbers chapter 14. I want you to save your spot in Exodus 13. I want you to flip over to Numbers chapter 14. And while you're flipping over to Numbers 14, let me tell you what's just happened. It is literally one year later because they have just celebrated their first Passover, which they do every single year. In chapter 13, they send spies up into the promised land to kind of check out the land, 12 of them. And 10 of the 12 spies come back saying, oh my goodness, there are giants in the land. They are going to kick our tails. This is going to be terrible. We got to run. There's no way we can go there. They're scared to death because they smell war. And I want you to see how they respond the moment they sniff out war. This is one year later, Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. It says, all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The first thing they do when they see war is they go, let's pick a different leader who will take us back to Egypt. And God back in Exodus 13 knew what they would do in Numbers 14 and he said, if they see war, they're going to go right back to Egypt. I already know it. And so God's greatest grace was to send them south when every bit of them wanted to go north. Here's what, here's what I want to teach you. I want to teach you 
that God knows best for your life. In fact, I actually want you to write that down. I know it's just three words, but we're going to build a formula here. You're going to have some, some addition. It's going to equal some. It's an equation I'm going to give you that's going to help you understand who God is so you can learn how to relate to him. You can understand what he's doing in your life. It's going to require you to build this equation up. So the first part of the equation are these three words. God knows best. So write them down on your phone, a piece of paper, whatever you need to do. God knows best. Here's what I mean by that. God knows your future. God knows how you're going to respond. God knows what obstacles you're going to come against. God knows the best way for your life. And even if you think it's north and God says go south, it's because God knows best. You can trust God because God knows best. In fact, that's the second part of this equation you got to write down. So God knows best plus, plus God can be trusted. Write that second part down in the equation. God knows best plus God can be trusted. Now, here's what I want you to see. These two both are necessary for you to be able to relate to God. Because if God knows best, but he can't be trusted, then you probably shouldn't do what he says because he may be out to get you. But if God can be trusted, yet he doesn't know what's best, he may give you some bad advice. But both of these, when they come together, they change who you are. That's why in the story that we're reading, the next place he goes to is to talk about the faithfulness of God. And that was the whole thing about the bones of Joseph in verse 19. Go back and read verse 19 of Exodus 13. So he's been showing us that he knows what's best for him. And now in verse 19, he reminds them of his faithfulness. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So I know if you're reading through the passage, that feels kind of like out of left field, talking about Joseph's bones. But what this is supposed to be is a stark reminder of the utter faithfulness of Almighty God. Because over 400 years before this moment in Exodus 13, God had spoken to Joseph, and Joseph had said to the people of God, one day, God's going to come, and you're going to take my bones with you. In fact, I want you to read it, so keep your place in Exodus 13. And listen to what Joseph said. This is back in Genesis, chapter 50, the last few verses of the book, verses 24 and 25. The very end of Joseph's life, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Now, if you don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph at the time of this statement is second in command in the land of Egypt. It's a long, beautiful journey. Go back and read Genesis and hear about how God moved in Joseph's life if you don't know the story. But he is a man of power. There's a famine in the land of Israel, and so Joseph brings his family down into Egypt, 70 of them, and they come in into the land of Goshen. And life is peachy. I mean, things are going great in the land of Goshen. They have everything they need because Joseph's second highest in command. They have power. They have, they have resource. They have land. It's beautiful. But Joseph says, I know as good as things are, this is not the end place because God has made a promise. We're going to end up in the promised land, in the land of Canaan, the same place he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, guys, when that time comes, my bones, I want you to take them to the promised land. And here you have Exodus 13, over 400 years later. And God says, here are the bones, take them. I have been faithful to my promise. And though they take these bones and they, are, they aren't immediately put into the promised land, over 40 years later in the book of Joshua, if you were to get to the end of that book in chapter 24, you read they finally lay the bones of Joseph down in his ancestor's tomb. 
And God proved to be 100% faithful. God is always faithful. But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the gap between when God made a promise and when God was faithful. He makes a promise. He's going to give them the promised land. It's going to be theirs. And over 500 years later, they finally get to see that promise realized. 500 years of having to walk by faith and not by sight. That gap between when God makes promises and when God fulfills those promises, that's the test of faith. And every single one of you in here will have to deal with that gap. Now, sometimes that gap is a few weeks. Sometimes that gap is a few decades. But that, that gap is the test of your faith. I, I experienced that gap. God had called me to ministry. He said, this is my my calling. I've I've equipped you for it. I've called you to it. I put a passion in there for you to have it. But it was two decades from the moment I got that call to the moment I actually had the ability to preach and to lead every single week. Two decades. Even when I came to Fielder 17 years ago, it was a great blessing for me, but I wasn't leading and I wasn't preaching. I wasn't doing the very things I felt the most called to do. I just knew God was calling me here and I didn't know why. And I had to wander around this desert year after year after year, wondering what God was doing. But now I stand before you today, 20 years later, and I see the faithfulness of my God. That he would give me the privilege of leading this church and to get to preach in this pulpit week after week after week. That's a testament to the faithfulness of Almighty God. He is faithful, always. When he makes a promise, 100 out of 100 times, he will keep it. But there will always be a gap between when he makes a promise and when he fulfills it. And the question is, how will you behave in the gap? Will you trust him? But listen, those moments when I wanted to throw in the towel, moments when I didn't want to keep pressing in, God kept beckoning me, trust me, trust me, trust me. And because I was willing to trust him, I went everywhere he took me. If he said, go right, I went right. If he said, go left, I went left. Sometimes it took a while for me to get there, but I would get there. And I ended up where I'm supposed to be because I trusted him. And that's the end of the equation for you. I want you to go back to the equation. I want you to fill it out. Last part of it. God knows best plus God can be trusted equals follow God anywhere. Write that down. This is the equation for your life. If you, this is the blocking and tackling, the fundamental of the Christian faith to know that God knows best plus God can be trusted equals I'll go wherever, whenever he tells me to go. If God does know what's best for you and God really can be trusted, why wouldn't you go wherever he tells you to go even if it doesn't make sense to you, even if it hurts? It's this formula that led to the very last part of Exodus 13 that we've been looking at, this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. I want you to go back and read that because this is a prime example of how God moves. So going back to Exodus 13, verses 21 and 22, it says this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. What this is right now, this, this is a, a huge column, a pillar of cloud that was in the daytime that they could see, or by night, it would just light up with whatever means God to fire that people could see it constantly. 
And this represented the presence of God. And the way this worked is this pillar would just move all around the wilderness. And for 40 years, they have to follow this pillar around. But this pillar was erratic. In fact, if, if you were to map out the, the, the wilderness of Sinai, it's not a very big place. You could traverse it in three or four weeks by foot. But if you were to map out their journey across it, it would look like this. I mean, it, and there are ways to map it because it shows where they go from place to place to place to place. And the reason they did that kind of circuitous journey is because each time all they would do is go, oh, pillar's moving, let's go. Pillar stopped, let's stop. Oh, pillar's moving, let's go. And their whole idea was to follow it. Now, I'm not going to read it because it'll take too much time, but if I were to go to Numbers chapter 9, you would read about this pillar. It was this crazy thing that would move around completely erratically, especially in timing. It says every once in a while, the pillar would lift up from the tabernacle and it would move and the people would follow it and then it would park somewhere and they would set up their camp and sometimes it would stay in that place for months on end. And as long as the pillar stayed there, they were supposed to stay there. And then it says it would pick up and they would move and they were supposed to move with it and they would march along and it would move for a couple of weeks and then it would stop and they were supposed to stop. Then it says every once in a while, the pillar would come to rest at night and the next morning it would get up and it would leave. They were supposed to pack everything up and keep following it. And what God is doing for 40 years is he's training them to follow him wherever he would lead them, even when it didn't make sense. He wanted them to trust the direction he was leading and the timing he was leading in. And for 40 years, it was a training ground. And you want to know why? Because they needed 40 years to learn how to follow God. God knew the moment they entered in the promised land, the only way they were going to be ready to fight is if they knew how to follow him to a T. And, and think about their first victory. If you know anything about the conquest of the land, their first fight was against a city named Jericho. Now, if they were not willing to follow God, if they were bent on military strategy, they never would have did what they did. They never would have done what they did. It says they went into the city and God said, here's the plan. For six days, march around the city. And on the seventh day, march around it seven times and scream really loud at the walls. That's the strategy. And if for 40 years, God had not been training them how to give up their own reason and to go where he told them to go, when he told them to go, they never would have been that crazy. But after 40 years of training, they go, okay, I guess what we're going to do. They march around, they scream, the walls come tumbling down, and they get the massive victory, the, the first real victory. And what that shows us is God was equipping them for war, not by teaching them how to swing a sword, but by teaching them how to follow his lead. And that's the exact same reason God gives us that gap between whenever he makes a promise and whenever he feels, fulfills the promise. He is teaching us how to follow his lead, how to zig when he zigs and how to zag when he zags, because he knows we are not ready to conquer this life until we're ready to follow his lead. And I gotta be honest with you. Sometimes your journey takes longer than others because you've got a really thick head. That's, my, that's why it took two decades to get me where I'm supposed to be. Don't laugh, Virginia. Two, she just said, I'm sorry. <laughs> she just laughed at me. She knows. Sometimes God takes you on a really long journey because you are struggling to follow his lead. You think you know what's better. And so he keeps you in that gap, training you again and again. And let me tell you about God. He doesn't tell you step 47. He tells you step one. Right here, okay, now what, God? This way, okay, now what, God? This way, okay, now what, God? This way, okay. God, I'm right back where we started, I know. 40 years of training you to listen to him and to follow him. Now, the pillar, that, was, that represented the presence of God in the Old Testament. Let me tell you the equation of that in the New Testament. 
It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God among us. And this Spirit, the presence of God isn't outside of us in a pillar. It's inside of us. And the Holy Spirit guides us in how we're supposed to move. And God teaches us that gap is the training ground, that frustrating, painful training ground to say, I'm trying to teach you to listen to my voice and go where I tell you to go. Stop trying to figure out where you're supposed to go and listen to me. Ask me. Hear my voice. I will tell you what to believe, where to go, how to live, when to go, and where to go. And the Spirit is training us because he wants to use us. My question for you is, will you trust the direction and the timing of God for your life, even when it hurts? Will you trust the timing and the direction of your life, even when he pins you against the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is coming against you? Even when it takes you through a lot of loss, even when it's the last thing you would ever want, even when it makes you go, God, are you even listening? Would you still say, God, I'm going to trust you know what you're doing. I'm going to go where you tell me to go, when you tell me to go. I may not understand it, but God, I believe you do because you know what's best and I can trust you. So I'll follow you anywhere. Listen, if you're struggling to do that, and some of you are today, if you'd be honest with yourself, the one thing that will give you the audacity to trust in God is by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because this is what I most love about God. Our God is a God who practices what he preaches way better than this preacher up here. He says, I, I want you to follow me even when it doesn't make sense. And I'm going to go ahead and show you what it looks like. God takes on flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. And he has a moment in a garden, a garden called, called Gethsemane. And here he is. And the father is telling him, I'm sending you to be brutalized, tortured, and murdered. That's my plan. And it's such a crazy plan that even Jesus is saying, I don't know about this plan. That's when he says, Lord, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, let it be. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying. I don't yet see the wisdom of this plan, Father. Maybe there's another way. If there's any other way, let it pass from me. But then he says those profound words, yet not my will, your will be done. And in that one statement, he's saying, God, Father, you know what's best, and I trust you. And I'll go anywhere you tell me to go, even if that place is the cross. But because of that obedience... Goes into the cross, laid in a tomb. Three days later, he's resurrected from the dead. And he gets a name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he shows us the power of obedience. The Father does know what he's doing. And he's calling us to believe the same. Listen, if you come to a place of faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it beckons you to say, God, if you can take a cross, a torture an instrument of torture and murder and bring about salvation, God, you can cause all things to work together for good. I see it and I believe it. Just show me where to go. But sometimes faith is hard. Sometimes there are some of you and you're in that moment where you don't know, you don't know why God is dragging you through what you're going through. There are some of you right now and you don't want anybody to know your thoughts, how angry you are how frustrated you are, how close you are to giving up. And you're a believer in Jesus and you're struggling with these things. And I think the Lord is trying to say, I know where you are. I'm not, I'm not heaping evil upon you, but I'm using it. I know you've made some mistakes, but I can use them if you'll just trust me. And maybe today the best way you can trust him 
is by saying in the middle of the pain, that weight and that burden you have on your shoulders to go, I'm going to lay him right back at your feet, Jesus. In a moment, we'll have people who are down front who'll be ready to pray for you. And that's a symbol of faith. Say, God, I have this weight upon me and I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I don't see the wisdom in it, but I'm going to lay this at your feet and I'm going to trust you with it. Maybe the greatest thing you could possibly do is to humble yourself enough to have somebody else pray for you and say, God, I'm putting it in your hands. I trust you. It doesn't make sense to me, but I trust you. I'll follow you. Show me your power. I hope you'll be brave enough to come and be prayed over for whatever needs you have. But before I open that up, there's one last thing I need to say. There are some of you in this room, I am certain of it. And you are angry with God. And you do not believe that he could be good after all you've gone through in your life. You just can't get your mind around it. How could God, a good God, let you go through the abuse you went through as a kid? How could a good God let you be mistreated the way that you've been mistreated? How could a good God let you be scarred the way that you've been scarred? How could a good God sit back and do nothing when you were dragged through the mud? And you're, you're sitting here going, I, I hear you, pastor up there saying all you're saying, but there's no way God could really be good and in control if, he's, if, if a human being could go through the trauma I've gone through. And you look at your life and it's just pit of hell after pit of hell after pit of hell and you're going, there's no way, no way God could be good. And what he's trying to say to you right now is I haven't made a mistake in your life. I've been trying to get you to the point of brokenness where you'll finally give up and let me save you. I've been calling you. I've been beckoning you. I've been wanting to show you I can lead your life and you refuse to come to me. And I know it's been painful and I've had a drag. It hurts my heart worse than it hurts yours to see you go through what you have to go through, but I can't get you to listen to me. And right now he's saying, would you see, I love you. I know it doesn't make sense to you, but I love you. I wouldn't send my son to die on the cross if I didn't love you. I just want you to come to me. Every hardship, every pain, I've been right there with you. I've been trying to get you to come to me. Would today be the day you come to me? Would today be the day you realize I've been doing all this just to get you to come to me? Because I love you and I want you. I just wonder if there aren't some of you today, for the first time in your life, who need to say, though I've been through, I've been to hell and back, I now see for the first time why God was doing it. Because it took that much to break my heart enough to say, I need you, Jesus. If that's you. Then today can be the day where it all finally makes sense. The day your eternity changes because you realize God has just been there to love you, to break you down so he can build you up, to chip off all the things that are broken, all the things that are dirty and make you brand new. But it requires a step of faith. That step of faith is clear. You've got to publicly declare your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, I, I, want you to, I want you to bow your heads. Everybody in the room, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Even, even if you're watching online, just bow your head and close your eyes. I just believe there are some of you, you've been fighting against God. You've been so hurt by God. And he's saying to you right now, would you trust me? Would you give me your life? Listen, he's listening to you right now. You can pray to him even inside your heart. He hears your thoughts. He hears what's inside you. And maybe you just need to tell him that you're sorry for being angry with him. 
if that's you, would you just tell them that you're sorry right now? Just inside your heart. You're just, you're praying inside to the Lord. He's listening. Tell him that you're sorry for being angry, for misunderstanding him, for blaming him. Maybe you need to tell him that you're sorry for running from him. From, from living your own way instead of his way. And you now realize it's sin, it's rebellion. Ask him to forgive you because he will. And maybe you just need to tell him right now in your heart, just say, okay, God, I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to trust you. I'm ready to go where you tell me to go. I give you my life. Tell him that right now, just in your heart, tell him. Tell him that you love him, that you trust him. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you prayed for the first time in your life and you said that to the Lord, you said, okay, I'm ready to stop fighting. I'm ready to trust you. I'm ready to give my life to you. That was a private moment that God heard and God responded to. But the next thing he says is, I want you to go public with your faith. Let me tell you what that looks like. It means taking one step. Remember, I told you before, this is how the Spirit leads. He just tells you one step. He doesn't tell you what's going to happen 47 steps later. He says one step. And right now, he's telling you, I've got a step for you. I want you to publicly declare your faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. We have a baptistry on stage because I want to provide the opportunity every single week, even if no one takes it, the opportunity for somebody to step up and say, I'm ready. I'm going to take that one step. I don't know what's going to happen to you when you leave this place. I don't know how many zigs and zags God's going to take you through, but this is a definitive line where you're saying, I'm going to trust you, God. You know what's best for my life, and I'm I'm going to follow you because I trust you. It's one step that begins a journey of discovering what God has for you. If you need to take that step, we're going to have pastors who are down front ready to meet with you and help you take that step of faith. So I'm going to invite you all to stand up right now, if you will, and the pastors and prayer team to make their way around. If you need to put something in the hands of the Lord, they're going to be here ready to pray with you. It's your sign of trust. If you need just to bow down on the steps, you can do that. If today you're ready to take that step of faith and go, I need to, I, I prayed that prayer. The Lord, the Lord heard me. I'm ready to take my step toward baptism. You come let us know. Respond as you need to.